0: Welcome to Thursday Morning Chapel. Um, We've had a really big week here at Prairie, uh, starting off Tuesday with Dr. Houston, and this morning we get to hear from another world-class speaker. Um, I'm honored this morning to introduce Dr. Christopher Yuan. Uh, His speaking engagements have taken him to five continents in the world. He has spoken at conferences such as the Gospel Coalition, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and InterVarsity's Urbana. He co authored with his mother their memoir, Out of a Far Country A Gay Son's Journey to God and a Broken Mother's Search for Hope. Uh, He is also the author of a book called Giving a Voice to the Voiceless. Dr. Yuan graduated from Moody Bible Institute in 2005, from Wheaton College, from Wheaton Graduate School in 2007 with with a master's in biblical exegesis. And he received, in 2014, his doctorate from Bethel Seminary. For the past eight years, he's been a professor teaching the Bible at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois. Um, I just want to make mention that this book and other books will be for sale in the um, Maxwell Center. And Christopher is traveling with his his mother, Angela, and his father, Leon. And so, um, Dr. Yuan and Angela and Leon, we are so blessed to have you here. We're really excited, and, and we pray that you will also be blessed um, as you engage with our student body over the next two days. So if you'd come forward, Dr. Yawn, I'd just like to pray for you as you begin. God, we thank you for this room, and that, God, we can hear um, from you in it, that you can speak. Through your servant, Christopher, God, we pray that you would uh, open our hearts, open our minds and our eyes, God, that we would hear truth from you today, and we thank you for Christopher's testimony and for the life that you have redeemed. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.
1: It is cold here. (laughs) I'm not used to this. Everyone says, you know, you're from Chicago. Aren't you used to the cold? I'm still. I, I'm born. I was born and raised in Chicago, and I'm still not used to it. But um, it is just amazing to be here. And um, I'm really thank you for the invitation, for uh, to be here at, uh, at Three Hills. I, I, I told a few. I told someone. Um, I was like, oh, I'm going to Three Rivers. They're like, where's that? Three Hills. <laughs> Are there really hills there? Three. There's probably lots and lots. Um, Actually, one of my students went here. Josh Decker, isn't there some Deckers here? So, Josh says hello. You know what I should do? I should like videotape that. Uh, Tomorrow we'll do that. Anyway, I am here, and I have the privilege of talking about sexuality, and I know that that's not a topic that we talk about much. I'm not talking about just Christian colleges. I'm saying in general in churches, right? Amen? Unfortunately, we, we see the world talking about it, and yet we don't. The One of the most relevant issues, and we're afraid, we don't want to offend, we don't know what to say, and then we end up saying nothing, or we just saying, oh, that's bad, which it's not. Sex is good to be reserved for husband and wife in marriage. And I want to spend this next couple days that I have with you guys, uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit about sexuality. Uh, t- tonight, I'm doing a talk. I can't remember where that is. You'll probably talk about that later, but um, somewhere here. probably won't be far. Um, it, I think it's at 7 o'clock, maybe. Maxwell Center. I, every, everything's over there, right? So, go in the Maxwell Center, 7 o'clock, and I'm going to be talking more about how to uh, talk about the different texts, and, and how do we engage with those who hold to an embracing view of, of same-sex relationships. Tomorrow I'm going to, in chapel, talk about how do we, um, now what? I mean, now that we hold to a biblical view of sexuality, how do we love in the way that God intends us to love? How do we share the love of Christ and a new life in Christ to those of our friends? But I wanted to share with you my story. I mean, who am I? I'm, I, I'm from Chicago, I'm, but what else? Well, this is something that's very personal to me. I was, um, my parents are born in China, raised in Taiwan, and they came here to the U.S. for graduate school, and uh, they weren't Christian. We didn't own a Bible. We didn't go to church, but my parents raised me with very traditional Chinese values. Let me fill you in on Chinese values. Obey your parents, do well in school, and practice piano. You see, I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. I know it was all downhill from there. Don't worry. (laughs) I just, I didn't fit in with my other Caucasian friends. I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity, and Satan can't take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at a friend's house at nine. Unfortunately, that is a pretty average age now of children being exposed to pornography. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. Unfortunately, pornography has become the master of many, many youth and adults, men and women. Many of us do not know how easily accessible it is on the internet and do little or nothing to protect ourselves and our families from it. Did you know that the pornography industry is a multi-billion dollar industry? There's a few other industries that are multi-billion dollar industries in the U.S., Take the major television networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, those are the big ones. Their combined annual revenue was $6.2 billion. The combined annual revenue of the major league sports uh, in, in the US and in North America, baseball, basketball, hockey, football, $12 billion. If we were to add up those two industries, television industry and the major league sports, they would pale in comparison to the annual revenue of the pornography industry $57 billion. We are in an all out war with the pornography industry. To be honest, we're losing miserably. Even scarier, did you know 9 out of 10 youth aged 8 to 16 have already viewed pornography on the internet? Even scarier, statistics say 1 out of 5 children aged 10 to 16 have received a sexual solicitation over the internet by a predator. And oftentimes, these children had no idea and didn't think anything was wrong. I hope that concerns us. Students, visitors, I hope that concerns us. Even being here in the rural, you know, nice rural area that we see is a little bit more protected from the craziness of the big cities, doesn't mean that we're not immune. Because of internet and because of media and movies, we have really become much more, the world has become flat. We have to do something. There are more pornography stores in America than there are McDonald's. Can you believe that? So what can be done, especially in regards to Internet pornography? Something that I advocate and my parents and I advocate and have on our computers, we have double Internet protection. You guys probably heard of having an Internet filter. That's really helpful, uh, but double internet protection means having not only a program that either has both a filter and an accountability program, or just having to do two different programs. A lot of times now, the, the programs that you can buy have both. One that blocks questionable sites from being viewed, that's a filter, but the other one is an accountability program that logs in sites that are viewed or that do get through the, uh, the, the filter two programs that my parents and I sometimes advocate that you can be found at these two websites. One is caninewebprotection.com and the other one is x3watch.com. You guys can feel free to write these down. A lot of people don't know about these. And the reason I want to highlight these is because both of these are free. How many of you guys, how many students here are rich, like filthy rich? Any of you guys? Okay, so that would make no one. So, okay, how many of you students like free things? Okay. You know, how many Christians like free things? That's like everyone. Like, I mean, we're, like we're first in line, right? Free? Uh, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. It's free. Hurry up. Um, you don't have to get this right now. You can wait till after chapel to get it because it's free, but uh, it's, it's… a lot of times we know of… and I'm only listing these because I know, as students, you have a limited budget or no budget. And so you're always, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, you're like, I'd love to have a filter. I'd, I'd love to put something on my computer, but it costs money. Forty, I don't have $40. There, there are good ones for, for those of you visitors, visitors that are looking for more powerful, more uh, programs that have more options. Uh, nanny is a good one, Covenant Eyes, Safe Eyes, there are several good ones out there that cost money that definitely have more functionality than these. But again, if you don't have a lot of money and, you know, money to, to, extra money to spend, there's, there's resources out there that can help with your struggle. And I, I'm, I know in a room like this size, there are men and young ladies who wrestle with pornography. And I just want you to know you're not alone. But let me also tell you the secret that Satan is trying to tell you, that you can do it alone. You know what's the best weapon of Satan? Isolation. Man, he wants to fool you into thinking that you need to keep this secret, that you don't need to tell anyone you can fight this on your own or you're going to get embarrassed or whatever, you know. That's a lie. It's when we struggle in darkness, that's when it's the worst. Find a trusted brother, staff member. People here at Prairie care for you, and they want to walk with you, but they can't if you don't ask for it. They can't if you don't open up. We have to talk openly and frankly with our children. Some of you might have grandchildren. You're like, well, my children are already out of the house. I'm sure you guys… How, how many visitors have grandchildren? And we're living in a different world. I just want you to know that. You probably do know that. We are in a different world. And parents are often busy, and they might not have that extra time to sit down and just chat with their kids, and maybe that's the job that you can do, grandparents. We are in a different world, and, and we're so concerned sometimes. We think, when is it too young to talk to our youth about kids? That's actually the wrong question. It's not when is it too when is it too early to talk to my kids, you know what the question should be? When is it too late? Most of the time that parents talk to their kids, maybe around junior high or whatever, the kids say, I already know all that. Wouldn't it be amazing if you talk to your kid or your grandchild and you ask them, do you know about sex or do you know know the term gay? And they would say, I have no idea. Praise the Lord, let me tell you, because I don't want the world to tell you first. Does that make sense? But what's happening today, I would say the majority, if I took, you know, if I took a survey right now, did you hear, first hear about uh, sex from your parents? I, 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 I think some, some here would, praise the Lord, but I think most of the time it's from media, it's from the playground, from their peers, from public school, and let me tell you, the job of teaching sex education is not the public school's job, amen? And I might say something that's a little radical, too, even maybe some of you guests might be pastors. The job of teaching sex education is not the church's job either, primarily. The primary job to teach sex education is not the youth pastor's job. How many people want to be youth pastors here? It's not your main job to teach your youth about sex. You know who's the main job to teach children about sex education? The parents. And yet we've relinquished that decades ago to the world. We have to take it back. Church leaders, pastors, speakers like myself, we are here to cheer you on, parents and grandparents, but we're never going to take away that main responsibility from you, primarily parents, and I think even grandparents. Unfortunately, with pornography fueling my same-sex attractions and my sexual feelings, I had my first sexual encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps reserves. In my early 20s, I started secretly going out to the gay clubs. Then when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet. I began living openly as a gay man. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship. Um, And after that, I decided to go home and break the news to my parents. And I told them, I am gay. Devastated my mom. Remember, she wasn't a Christian. In her mind, she thought that an ultimatum would bring me to my senses, and she said, you must either choose the family or choose that. She couldn't even say the word. Well, for me, this wasn't a choice. This is who I am. And I told my mom, if you can't accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. So I left home, and I went back to Louisville. My mom was crushed. timing couldn't have been any worse. After years of living as non Christians, my parents' marriage was a wreck. They actually began the paperwork for a divorce. So she was literally at the end of a rope and found no more reason to live. And on the next day, she had resolved to do the unthinkable. She was going to end her life. For some reason, she felt the need to go see a minister. Remember, she's not a Christian. And this minister gave her a little pamphlet on homosexuality, a little booklet. So my mother bought a one-way Amtrak ticket. Not round trip, just one way. She wasn't coming back, where she planned to say goodbye to me for the last time before ending it all. With only her purse and that pamphlet, she boarded on the train thinking that death was the only answer to all the problems. Never being much of a reader, on the train, she began reading this little pamphlet, which shared with her the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners, and yet in spite of our sin, the God of the universe still loves us. And God opened up the eyes of her heart to see that just as God could love her in spite of her sin, she could love me, her gay son. So, on this train, as she was reflecting upon God's love, she looked out the window. And unlike here in Western Canada, um, the Midwest is pretty flat. So, when you're taking a train through Indiana, of all places, it's flat. And normally, it's pretty boring. But on that May morning in 1993, she was on this train read this pamphlet, that God loves her. She looked out the window, and it felt, she thought she could see for miles. And it was spring, so the harvest was coming. I mean, it was green, it was lush, and she, as she looked at the wonders of creation, at that moment, she knew that there must be a God. My mother, who was not searching for God, was found by her loving Creator. And as she marveled at what she saw, she, she realized and gave her life to Christ. One of her favorite verses today is Romans one twenty. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse." So, as she looked out that window, reflecting upon God's love, she heard a still, small voice. All her life, she she's heard this voice, and it said, you belong to me. All her life, she wanted to belong, belong to a loving family. She came from a broken home. Then she wanted to make her own family, and now her whole family was falling apart. And God was saying, you don't belong to anybody, but you belong to me. Those four words from God were a healing balm to her shattered heart. My mom, who wasn't searching for God, was found by a loving creator. My mom went to Louisville expecting to end her life. And in reality, she did. One of her favorite verses, another one, is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Within a few months, my father also became a Christian. So Christ living in them prepared my parents for the difficult years ahead as I headed further and further away from God. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship. I wanted nothing to do with God, nothing to do with their newfound religion. I went from relationship to relationship, and I was seeking for intimacy and happiness, which we all seek for, right? But it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. Now I need to be clear, not all gays and lesbians do drugs or are promiscuous, some do, some don't, but that is part of my story, and I want to tell you my whole story, but I also want to tell you that when you encounter Jesus, He will impact every aspect of your life. So, I began experimenting with drugs, but like most of you, I was poor, and if I was going to do drugs, I'd have to find a way to support my habit, and I did that by selling drugs, and I sold it to friends, classmates, even a professor— See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was was to receive my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville, where I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. See, my dad's a dentist. He knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parents should do anyway? To my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother looked at the dean and said, it is not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And they said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. See, my mother knew that when it comes to her children, nothing is more important they're no children following Jesus. Even more important than education, even more important than career. But the sad reality is many people will go to church on Sundays and worship God, but then return home and worship idols. The idol of their education, the idol of their career, the idol of their retirement plan. And in essence, we're making our children do the same. Think about this. Do parents put more emphasis upon their children getting their homework done on a daily basis? Getting better grades? Getting into a better university? Or should Christian parents be putting the most emphasis upon their children following Jesus? Nothing is more important than following Him. But I got to be honest with you. I was not happy about their decision. They were not on my side. They were on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago, to the bright lights in the big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie and i began worshipping and serving the creature rather than the creator because in my world i had become god my parents had no clue that i was doing drugs or even selling drugs but they knew my biggest need was to know jesus christ as my lord and savior so they tried to reach out to the love of christ and i wanted nothing to do with it my mother would send me christian cards like every other day. It was like clockwork. (laughs) You know, I could depend on it. I think she would get this big stack of Christian cards. Uh, You guys have Christian bookstores here? You know, well, who used bookstores, brick and mortar, bookstores, but back then, you know, they they have these stores. You go and you buy things, you know, (laughs) and the paper, you know, cash. So, So, you know, you might remember that when you were younger. So, they had these things called Christian bookstores, and so my mom would let, get this big stack of, book, you know, cards, and I don't know if you've ever noticed something about uh, Christian cards, but you ever, you ever notice how they're always so girly? <laughs> I mean, think about it, you know, it's like you got this, you know, your token bunny and kitten and flower pot, you know, you open it up, all this glitter comes out… there's never any masculine Christian cards, right? I mean, you know, like blood, stuff blowing up, you know, dirt, big machines. (laughs) I think we need masculine Christian cards because they're not there. So, anyway, my mom would get these nice, cute little Christian cards, and in these nice Christian cards was a, you know, there's always a nice Christian verse in it warm and fuzzy. Well, that wasn't enough for my mom, so she would take the card and fill it in with paragraphs of Scripture. She writes really small paragraphs of Scripture, and not things like, you know, what you're doing is, you know, you're going to hell, but something really encouraging that she heard on Christian radio that morning, or a sermon that she heard from a passage that Sunday prior. And On the back of the card, she would write in her favorite hymn of the week, all 27 verses. (laughs) And at the end of every card, she would sign it, love you forever, Mom. And I wouldn't read them, and I'd simply toss them in the trash. So, my parents thought, well, maybe I would come home. If they bought me a plane ticket, maybe I would go home for the holidays. So, one Christmas Eve... My mother went to O'Hare Airport. This is back before 9-11 where you could actually go to the gate and greet your guests. She went there. She was so excited. Her son was coming home, people were coming off the plane, and finally everyone got off the plane, and the pilot came off with her stewardesses, and I wasn't there. So she thought, well, maybe I'll miss that flight, find out when the next one was coming. And so a couple hours later, she went back to the gate again, One by one, passengers were coming off. I mean, her heart would rise with excitement as she thinks she'd see me coming down the the jet bridge and then drop with disappointment, as she realized it wasn't me. One by one, passengers were reunited into the arms of their loved ones, and she stood there all alone. And as that last person came off the flight, she realized that I wasn't going to be home for Christmas that year. So in tears, she returned home alone. My parents realized if they were going to see me, they would have to come to me. So they flew to Atlanta one time, and after the second day, I had enough, and I told them to get out. And they weren't preaching at me. They weren't telling me I'm in sin, but you know, just the fact that God had so transformed their lives that they radiated Christ that was offensive to me and i told them to get out and i didn't even give them an opportunity to call up my their friends to pick them up before my dad left he wanted to give me something and it was his very first bible it was all dog-eared highlighted notes in the margins and i told my dad i don't want your bible I didn't even want him to think that I actually might read it. My dad, being a pretty persistent man, left it on my kitchen counter anyway and walked out the door. And as soon as they left, I took my dad's Bible and I threw it in the trash can. I wanted nothing to do with God and certainly nothing to do with the Bible. And after that visit, it was more than obvious to my parents that I was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my parents committed not to focus on the hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over 100 prayer warriors from their church, from their Bible study fellowship group, they began to cry out to God for me. My mother began to pray a bold prayer. God, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She would literally spend hours, hours every morning in her prayer closet, on her knees, reading her Bible, crying out to God, interceding for me, for others, because she knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana, which is legal here in Canada, right? With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I'd started with the bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlantic City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know, we get that one phone call. I tried calling my friends. You know those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call those friends that get me more into trouble than anything else. Well, what I didn't know was I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. And she knew as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. And remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, she prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends... desert me. (laughs) And on that day, not one friend answered my collect calls, so beware of your mother's prayers. They're going to come true. (laughs) So, I was down to the bottom of the list. Home. And I did not want to call home, as I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But actually my mother's first words were Son, are you okay? No condemnation, no berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The apostle Paul says in Romans chapter two, verse four, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice Paul isn't saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath, but it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out His grace and drawing me to Himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was... Excited to get that phone call, if you could believe it or not, because <laughs> I hadn't called home in years, and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So, as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she knew she had to do like that good old hymn says, count your blessings, name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down. She reached out. Next to the phone was a calculator, and she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and on it, she began to write these first blessings. Christopher is in a safe place compared to before. (laughs) And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And today, this list of blessings is longer and taller than she is, both sides. Three days later, I was walking on the cell block. And if I'm going to be honest with you, I was doing my best to stay to myself. I didn't want to mingle too much with those really bad people, you know, those criminals. (laughs) And I was walking by myself. I happened to pass by the garbage can. For those of you that aren't familiar, They don't take the trash out every day in jail. So the garbage was overflowing out of the can. It was essentially a a mound of rubbish. It reeked. Flies were circling around it. And I looked at this trash and I thought, this is my life. I'm from upper-middle-class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made, but now I found myself among common criminals, trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can, but something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell, and for the first time, I opened up that good book, and I read through the entire gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I wasn't thinking, this is the Word of God. I certainly wasn't even thinking, this will be the answer to some of my problems. Actually, I was simply thinking that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow. (laughs) But as many of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God, and it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to gather the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight, and I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. They handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shuffled into the nurse's office. She shut the door behind me, sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read H. IV positive. The days after were dark and lonely. I was sentenced to six years, much better than ten years to life that I was facing. But news of my HIV status felt like a death sentence. One night, I was laying in my bed, just contemplating the mess that I've made of my life. I look, at, look up at the metal bunk above me. On it was graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. But someone had written something else in the corner, and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plan that I have for you declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future you see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Israel, to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I'd done in my past, He still, He still had a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you that at that moment, I said a sinner's prayer, and everything after that was perfect, like I had no more problems, far from the truth. God was convicting me of my dependencies. The most obvious was drugs, but within a few months, God delivered me from the bondage of that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other dependencies, other idols, but there was one that I felt like I couldn't let go of, and it was my sexual identity. I was reading through the Bible, and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally, but I also came across some passages, three in the old, three in the new, which we're going to talk about tonight, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So, I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion. I'm a new Christian, right? And I don't know that much about the Bible. I haven't really read it much. I, don't, I haven't studied it. So, I'm thinking to myself, I need to go ask someone who's more informed, who's more educated about the Bible, the chaplain. But to my surprise, this chaplain told me that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he gave me a book from a shelf, and he said, here, this book explains that view. So naturally, with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other, and can I just tell you from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God His Word and His Unmistakable Condemnations Against Same-Sex Relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse Every chapter, every page of Scripture, looking for justification. Chaplain told me God blesses same-sex relationships. So I'm thinking to myself, I want to read that for myself in the Bible with my own eyes. So I looked. I mean, I went through the whole Bible. I want to find any type of a positive affirmation of a blessing for a monogamous same-sex relationship. I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked. I looked, and I looked. I looked. And I couldn't find any. So, I was at a turning point, And a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and His Word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to control not only who I am, but also how I lived. Or... Abandon pursuing a monogamous same sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexual identity, by not allowing my sexual desires to control who I am, and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I learned several important lessons. First of all, I I realized that abstaining from sex is actually possible. I know, media says it's not, the world says it's not, but it actually is, who knew? Second, sexual abstinence is not going to make me psychotic or sick, no matter what Freud and Oprah say. Third, after abstaining from sex for a little while, I realized that, as a matter of fact, my sexuality doesn't have to be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally, and that is true. But don't we as sinners like to add to God's truth? I added, so therefore, God doesn't want me to change. And I know, I know you hear this a lot from your friends, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But after reading through the Bible several times, I found out something very important. That unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Let me say it again. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality alone. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my sexual attractions. My identity is not gay, is not ex-gay, is not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy for I am holy. You know, I had thought in the past that if I were to become a Christian... I would have to, you know, that have to become heterosexual, That's, that somehow the more sexually attracted I were to women, the more Christian I would be. But I realized that even if I had heterosexual feelings, I would still need to flee, my, uh, flee sinful temptation. I would still need to put to death my sin nature. So, heterosexuality is not the goal. Besides, God never says, be heterosexual for I am heterosexual. <laughs> but neither did He say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. Rather, God said, be holy, for I am holy. So, therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That's not the goal, but the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of any sin struggle is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm still tempted or not, we all will be tempted. I don't need to focus upon what I feel, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity, because change is not the absence of temptations. God never promised you, come to Jesus, and you'll never be tempted again. No. Change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the ability, the freedom to be holy, even in the midst of temptations. The ultimate issue is not what I'm struggling with, not whether I'm tempted or not, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal His plan for my life, and He called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison, of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my calling on life would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and He shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called and collected my parents, and I told them, I think God's calling me in ministry, and I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of at that time called Moody Bible Institute. But then there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they mailed the application into me to prison, and I was so excited when I got it tore open and began filling it out till I got to the very end of the application where they asked me for references. Not from anybody, but specifically people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. Do the math. I had some slim pickets in prison. <laughs> but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my reference to Moody. <laughs> So amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? Graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to my Master's in Biblical Studies from Wheaton College Graduate School, received my doctorate of ministry from Bethel Seminary uh, in St. Paul, Minneapolis in 2014, and I also had the immense honor of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote it together. She wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two, she wrote chapter three. She wrote all the odd chapters, I wrote the even chapters, because we wanted to tell you from our own voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different uh, perspectives. And then, God, how he brought us all back together. Our book has been translated into seven different languages, including Spanish, Korean, Chinese, and in the back of every book that we have of every uh, one of our memoirs is an eight-week discussion guide that actually many small groups are using, some Christian high schools and Christian colleges are using as a textbook. And it makes sense because we are being inundated, flooded with resources on sexuality, almost all from a non-Christian worldview. And we have to be proactive Have to be proactive. I mean, even parents. I know some parents that have been, that have taken these books and brought them home and been reading them with our, with their own kids. Yes, there's some mature material talked in there, but we, our kids are raised in, I mean, they're, they're talking about mature topics in kindergarten. Do you want your kids to talk about these mature issues in public schools first or at home First. We're not exposing our kids. We're equipping our kids to live in a different world. This one uh, grandmother went back to our book table one time, and, and she, she goes, I want 10 books. And I was like, wow, you just need one. She's like, no, young man, I need 10. And I was like, okay. She's, and then she goes on to explain. She said, one for myself and nine for my grandchildren. She said, I'm going to mail every one of my grandchildren a book, and I'm going to read it with them, and I'm going to discuss the, the questions with them as well. That's a grandmother who takes seriously the God-given responsibility to equip our children on biblical sexuality. Silence is no longer an option. Amazingly, God has given us back, my parents and I, uh, the years that the locusts have taken away. And my parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the world. They're traveling with us. We're, we're actually going to be speaking in Calgary this weekend. That's why I'm, um, we're all together. I actually never travel alone, so my mother always travels with me. But uh, So you'll have to say. She's up in the booth. Say hi to my mom. She's up there. Hi, Mom. That's my prayer warrior. <laughs> say hi to them at the book table. But God has done far, far, you know, it, and we travel around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and God's truth. And as if that wasn't a big enough blessing, God has a sense of humor, because now I'm back at Moody where I've been teaching over nine years in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? (laughs) But God has done far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. You know, I look back upon my life, years, decades, far apart from Christ, and I see some really bad decisions that I've made, some of the decisions that have resulted in some lasting consequences one of those being hiv positive but you know i realized something that actually i'm no different than any of you all of our days are numbered not one of us in this room has ever been promised tomorrow here on this good earth But, you know, it took getting HIV for me to realize a profoundly important truth, that as a child of God, I must live with a sense of urgency. You know, this world we live in today, crazy world, right? Right? I can't turn on the news again without something insane happening, especially in America, in politics. <laughs> but besides that, I mean, I mean there's just crazy things. The shootings that happen in America, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, it's just, it is heart-wrenching. Hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis, diseases threat of terrorism, threat of nuclear war. When I look at the world we live in today, I am fully convinced that it does not need another good Christian. A good Christian who might go to church every Sunday, good person in the eyes of man, but doing little or nothing for the kingdom of God. This world doesn't need any more good Christians, but what this world needs, what this world demands are great Christians, Christians who don't settle for mediocrity, Christians who don't really really care what the person on the left says or what the person on the right says, but they're living for an audience of one. Christians who know that today might be their last. Jesus Christ might be coming back at any moment. Are you ready? Christians who cru- know that they've been crucified with Christ, and they no longer live. If you're crucified, you're dead. That's the only way that Jesus Christ can live in us. Christians who are living with a sense of urgency. God has only given every person one life to live whether that's 20 years, 30 years, 70 years, 100 years, that's nothing in light of eternity. Are you using the time you have here on this good earth for His glory? Not being great in man's eyes, like, look at me, I'm so great, lording over people, that's great in man's eyes. No, being great in His eyes, which means being the least of these, which means not coming to be served, but coming to serve. Because whether you're ready or not, every person in this room, every person here in Alberta in Canada in North America and around the world will one day, in the blink of an eye, I promise you, face our God and our Creator. And my hope is that he can look at you in the eyes and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are God and we are not. Forgive us, God, for chasing after the ways of the world, for settling for mediocrity. Lord, we know the needs of this world. There are so much. There are so many people that need to know about Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be salt and light. Lord, help us to make a difference one life at a time for your glory and be great Christians. God, we love you, we praise you, and we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus and the people of God said, amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.